everybody. I hope you're all healthy. Welcome to the Brazilian Beats. Uh, join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion and music making community one interview at a time. This is Courtney. And this is Diana. Hi there. Hello. Hope everyone is sheltering in place. Sterile. And sterile washing their hands and are doing well <laughs> yeah. um, in this crazy time. Yeah. Hang in there, everybody. We are here to distract you from everything that's going on. And, uh, yeah. Let you know that Samba is still going to happen once this is over. And Monica, too. And everything else. I know, I'm sorry. I always say that Samba. It's all going to happen again someday. Yeah. There's a lot going on, actually, right now. So. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff online you can catch. So many people doing Zoom classes. I think that's the basic one that everybody's using, right? Everybody's uh, using a lot of Zoom. people, yeah, yeah. There's pagology classes and samba, dance, all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. And a lot of practice time. Lots of practice time, which is awesome. Um, so we are sponsored today by GoSamba.net. And GoSamba.net now has gift certificates. Woo-hoo. Yay. So if you don't know what you want, or you have a friend and you don't know what they want, you can get them a gift certificate. Go to gosamba.net and uh, do me a favor and tell your friends. Can you get any amount? Is there a starting point of? There's like a range. Huh? So it's like, I think it starts at 20, goes to 100. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And those are on the website. Those are on the website. It was something that um, Shopify did for their customers because of this um, virus and all their, you know, don't want the stores, small businesses to fail. So, yeah. That would be a great birthday present or something like that. So if you have a quarantine present, quarantine present, yes. So if you have somebody that uh, needs an instrument, but you don't know what it is, you can send them a little gift card. That's right. That's right. So today... We have a good friend of ours from California, Brazil camp. We've been threatening to have him on the show for years, and our schedules just never matched up. But with uh, this quarantine, (laughs) people have a lot more availability these days. So today we're going to be speaking with Brian Rice. Brian is... uh, a highly acclaimed performer, educator, and recording artist, and one of the most versatile percussionists in the Bay Area. Though best known as a specialist in Brazilian and Cuban music, he can be heard playing a multitude of styles, and his percussion playing graces over 60 recordings. Brian received his Bachelor of Music from the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Percussion, Performance, and Ethnomusicology, and he has been a freelance musician since 1989, founding the Bateria Samba Seattle and Afro-Cuban Folkloric Collective and traveling to both Cuba and Brazil for musical studies. He currently performs with Mike Marshall and Choro Famoso, Claudia Velola, Jorge Alabe and Samba Hio, Cascada de Flores, the Berkeley Choro Ensemble, and Wake the Dead. He's an endorser of Latin percussion instruments. He is a lecturer in music and director of Samba and afro Cuban percussion at UC Davis. So here we go with our interview with Brian Rice. 
Just before we get to that, though, I wanted to apologize. The, we had a bunch of technical difficulties. At one point, the battery on his computer about cuts out, and then there's some audio weirdness. I did what I could, but it, it gets kind of sketchy there for a while, but then we come back around, so just, you know, white-knuckle your way through that. <laughs> I know... Uh, Tough audio is hard to listen to, you know, kind of messy audio is hard to listen to. I understand. Apologize, but we'll get through it together, just like the virus. Okay, <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Diana? Yes. How's it going? Hey, Courtney. Um, yeah, interesting times. Um, I'm here in my house for day. How many? I don't know yet. Uh, but yes, it's officially pandemic season. <laughs> Sweet. Well, we are going to keep going and pushing through. Yes. And today on the podcast, what do we have? We have our CBC buddy, Brian Rice. Hello, Brian. Hello. How are you guys? We're good. good. I mean, it's kind of weird, but we're good. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> we need to spread the love. Definitely. Yes, we uh, definitely need to talk to more and more people now that we're at home a lot. <laughs> exactly. So we're happy to have you here. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. We've been trying to like um, coordinate with different people and suddenly everyone's free. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like around the world, people have free time. <laughs> yes, they do. Yep. And uh, we've been trying to get Brian um, on the podcast with us for for years. <laughs> Seems uh, like. Yeah, so we're glad to have you here finally. It took a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Well, thank you for being here. And um, can you tell us like where you grew up and just a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Uh Let's see. I grew up, I consider myself from Michigan, though I was born in Chicago, and I did spend like six years of my grade school years in North Carolina and Raleigh, but we moved back to Michigan uh, after that stint in Raleigh. And so we've been, I grew I basically say I'm, I grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, which mm -hmm. is in Northern Lower Peninsula. Hmm. Uh, near a town called Interlochen, which I'll probably mention later. Hmm. So the bottom part of the glove or the mitten or whatever it is? <laughs> yeah, if you hold up your left hand, the back pointing towards someone else, you can point at the, the tip of the little pinky, mm -hmm. pinky and uh, that will basically point to, or if you look at the back of your hand, and it's where, the, where your pinky is. Ah. And there's a couple of beautiful bays there. Uh, off of Lake Michigan that are really long. I mean, they're 20, actually 40 miles long the together. But there's a 20-mile long, one-mile-wide peninsula jutting between the two. Bay. Really gorgeous uh, land over there. It's a cherry, cherry orchards everywhere. That was my first job, in fact. My first regular job was a cherry picker. Hmm. Nice. So, can you, you tell should, us? Wait, 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 wait. He should move to Oregon now because okay. we got lots of cherries. He's been here before, oh. Courtney. We'll Nobody get to that. I'm not, 
<laughs> you forget I'm a musician now. I'm not going back. To <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fine. So could you tell us when you got started in music? Did you play in grade school? What piqued your interest? Um, you know, my dad is a clarinetist, hmm. doctor, and uh, something of a singer. He, he sang in the Chicago Symphony Choir non-professionally um, and was a high school band director when I was cool. very, actually before I was born, really. Um, and then he was a principal and then he was a fine arts director. The reason we moved to North Carolina was so he could take a job at, at a private school that had a, an arts department that needed a fine arts director. And then we moved back to Traverse City. That's really when I got interested uh, because I was entering sixth grade when you begin band in school. And I wanted to be a drummer, so I decided that's what I was going to do. My dad was fine with that. Um, and that's where I got my start. I started on a glockenspiel playing, <laughs> you can imagine. And um, I found I, I kind of excelled. I was pretty good at it. I enjoyed it. That was the main thing is I enjoyed what I did. And uh, so I practiced a fair amount. And, and um, by like the next year in seventh grade, I started, I was playing a, my very first gig, uh, playing some jazz xylophone with a, a sort of a, a, a band. It was a weekend band led by this old guy who played boogie woogie piano. And, <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, I made 15 bucks playing some xylophone. <laughs> <laughs> um, after that, I found myself uh, in in band every year. That's what I really enjoyed, and that's where I found my friends. Um, my junior high had a immense music program. Um, it was public school, but it but they had I, I had 850 kids in my graduating class. Wow! Whoa. So they had a whole dedicated music building with a band room, an orchestra room, and a choir room wow. stage. And um, back when schools were funded, and exactly. there were five concert bands, there were three orchestras, there were five choirs and a couple of two or three madrigal groups. And wow. I just had lots and lots of music around me um, at in junior high and high school. Um, Plus, I guess the other the other sort of formative thing that I did was was I was a uh, a summer camper at Interlochen um, summer camp hmm. at summer when we moved back to Michigan, and so I was playing in the orchestra and the band and doing art classes and things like that for eight weeks in the summer. It was a uh, wow. One of one of the reasons we moved back to Traverse City is because that's where Interlochen is actually where my parents met. Uh, it's a huge music, music, dance, art, uh, drama. I mean, they do all kinds of art and stuff there at the camp. And my wow. parents met there. And so I was, every summer of my life when I was in North Carolina, even, we would take these long trips and end up in Michigan. So 
Um, I would I was well known by the faculty at Interlochen because my parents both worked there. So I was always surrounded by music, lots and lots of music. Mostly classical and jazz was what I was was being exposed to. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I played a lot. By by like ninth grade, there was the, the local orchestra needed percussion, percussion, uh, extra percussionists. So I was playing with the orchestra sometimes uh, wow. by ninth grade. Wow. So it was cool. It was a great, a great uh, schooling there. My senior year of high school, I left Traverse City to go to Interlochen Arts Academy. Um, and there I got to, you know, do all the, do all the classes, play in all the, play in the orchestra and, and all of that. Um, but it was just much more intense and it really helped set me up for going to Oberlin. Um, mm. uh, before I may, went to Interlochen, I was also doing, playing musicals for the summer. That was my summer job was playing in Sutton's Bay musicals or Traverse City or Old Town Playhouse. How fun. Um, so I was, I was pretty, pretty steeped in it. And it was at actually at Interlochen where I first real started realizing that there's a whole lot more out there in the world than um, classical music and jazz music, which are very deep wells themselves. But I realized there was something more going on. <laughs> now, when you say that, are you talking about anything in particular? Were you a rocker? Were you, <laughs> did you have a uh, no, underlying I'd have to, rock I'd have to... talent? <laughs> Interesting. You that, That's funny. I, I actually considered myself at the time kind of a rock snob. I was like, <laughs> I, I was so, I was a little snobbish in the sort of music department of European classical music was mm -hmm. a high, jazz was a high art, but everything else was basically um, not. And mm -hmm. I, I don't feel that same way anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of great, amazing music in every corner of the world. And uh, I was just not exposed to anything until, until about my senior year of high school. Um, I had played Tico Tico before, which is a Shoro, probably mm -hmm. the most famous Shoro piece. Hmm. I played the xylophone with that jazz band. Hmm. I might have played few other sort of Latin-ish pieces, but uh, um, my real schooling kind of got at, got going after after high school and af even after college. So yeah, I was a bit of a snob as far as rocking things goes. Uh, now, now I'm... we would never know now, Brian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. At, when I was at Interlock, and the interesting thing that happened to me was uh, were two two people who came to campus. Um, one was Bob Becker, who's a percussionist, fantastic classical percussionist, an amazing, um, just uh, just an amazing musician all around. But he's also an expert tabla player. Mm -hmm. 
and he's an expert Mbira player, Zimbabwean Mbira. Mm -hmm. And he's, he also uh, can do some Ghanaian drumming. And so he came to the day of percussion that was held at Interlochen that year in 85. That'll date me. And um, it, uh, he played all of those things. He played tabla, he had us playing Ghanaian drums, he played mbira, um, in addition to everything else he did. And I was uh, amazed, like how beautiful the mbira playing was, how amazing the tabla was. That year also uh, Shakti came out, the John McLaughlin's band, mm -hmm. the musicians, and that was mind blowing. Um, so I went on later to study tabla too, a little bit. Um, and the other thing that happened at Interlochen was Jamie Haddad, who has come to campus times. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was on campus doing some concerts with his quartet from New York. He had some friends at Interlochen um, and had some connections with people there. So he came and he gave me a, a lesson on uh, some murdangam, which is the South Indian sort of equivalent to tabla. It's a barrel-shaped drum um, that you play similarly to tabla and sounds similar to tabla. <laughs> and he gave me a lesson on that, and that blew my mind. And then he hands me a cassette tape that he recorded off the radio when he was in Brazil, <laughs> which I then proceeded to completely wear out. I, I just, like heard that music and thought, holy, holy crap. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to swear on this. You can say whatever not, you want. Yeah, not, feel free. Yeah, it's okay. It's a safe space. Yes. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so that, that, that was one of my first introductions to Brazilian music was hearing this music and it was just loaded with great, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, so once I got into Oberlin and was there for the, on the classical track, you know, I, I was thinking, oh, I'll be a classical percussionist one day. And, and I, it just all fell apart for me. I, I was like, I got to, I love this stuff so much, so much. And it's more interesting to me. It was so new and, and, uh, drew, it just drew me to it. I heard the stuff and but did said, you see, there's got to be. I got a question about, I got a question about that. Did you see a path forward though? Because a lot of times, you know, like, like the, the, um, there's a well-worn groove for like, you know, percussion majors to go into certain fields, but not, not necessarily like tabla playing and uh, no Bra Brazilian music playing. Like, did you see? Well, especially at that at that time maybe yeah right more so exactly it's... yeah I, I would definitely say that at that age at that time in my life i didn't see a way forward yeah. i thought this is what excites me this is what draws me to it i i'm gonna i'm gonna pursue it i and i yeah. got percussion degree i'd still do classical performances sometimes mm. just a month and a half ago um, or early February, I was playing in Steve Reich Music for 18 Musicians, which is this hour-long minimalist piece. Mm. 
So I, I do occasionally use those skills, mm -hmm. but I was at the time, I just was so enamored by uh, this music and anything that, that was worldly, that was from another place. Yeah. Uh, when I got to Oberlin, I, I joined the steel drum band pretty immediately because my music history TA said, Oh, I play in the steel drum band and we, we don't have a conga player. And I, I said, I've touched a conga drum before. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a friend who had a, a couple of congas at Interlochen. And so I found myself figuring, well, I could do that. So I said, I'd like to join the steel drum band. And they let me in right away. And I played conga, conga drums with them for four years. Um, that was a great experience though. I had zero technique, <laughs> no teach me. I was, I was picking everything up exact just from, just from hearing, I mean, trying to make some sounds, I right. knew making different sounds on the drums, but I was totally flying blind. Um, uh, but it was a great experience that steel drum band did give me another experience which was every year we sprint we would uh, tour during spring break and we'd go up to new york because there was a connection between the, the steel drum band and people in new york as the steel drums had come from there at any rate we'd be up there outside of manhattan like in white plains and we'd take trips into the city and one night we went in there and we heard uh, Eddie Palmieri with Giovanni wow. Hidalgo. Whoa. And I just stood like right in front of the congas <laughs> for three hours. And the first first set he played right. <laughs> and the second set he put his conga drum on the, his lower conga drum on the left and he played the whole second set left-handed. Wow. And I was like, what the? <laughs> Crazy. Wow. Um, another place another place that we'd like to go was the Brazilian American Cultural Center. So here's where I very my very first experience with samba uh, from Carnival. Okay. That was like you go to the Brazilian American Cultural Center and they had LPs, they had records. And I would look at these records and I'd see the the picture of the, the campion, campion from the year before on mm. the front, it's usually this incredible picture of a, of a float. Mm -hmm. And I saw the float and I saw the Sambodromo and just, I'd like, I, I got to buy all of these. So I bought <laughs> three or four records, like each time I'd go there, they'd have the, the newest one. So I've got some of the like mid and late eighties. Wow. Uh, cool. LPs and some, um, yeah. So anyway, those, those were, those also wore out. Well, awesome. I, I still have them, but they, mm -hmm. um, I listened to them quite a, quite a lot. Um, yeah. So that's the steel drum band. Experience. Now I have a question for you, Brian. Uh, mm -hmm. You, I know you were in college at this point, but you mentioned that your parents were really, you know, did the 
the classic and, and jazz styles, but were they supportive of you going this different route? Totally. Nice. I, I can't thank them enough. I mean, yeah, no kidding. The, there's a funny story actually that going back to my sixth grade year, I had a friend, a close friend of mine down the street who had a snare drum mm-hmm. and he, but he played trumpet. He, his dad was a scout leader. So he was in the scouts. Um, and I thought the snare drum was the coolest thing I'd ever seen or heard or played. And at the same time, my fifth grade, uh, this, while I was in fifth grade at, at uh, school in Raleigh, someone came and administered some kind of musical aptitude test. You know, they give you a pitch and another pitch and they say, is the first one, or this is the second one higher or lower than the first one? Or give you two rhythms and is the first one the same as the second one? You know, and you answer the questions as best you can. And they they even had somebody look at your teeth, like your, your embouchure, what oh, your embouchure. Oh, wow. And then they, they give everybody a, an, a suggestion of what instrument to start on. Now they, they came back to me and they said, Oh, Brian, we, we think you should start on clarinet. <laughs> and both my parents played clarinet. So it couldn't have been less cool at the time. <laughs> right. Now I think it's quite cool, but, uh, I went back to my house. I told my dad, uh, they said I should play clarinet. <laughs> and he said, well, sounds like you don't want to play clarinet. What do you want to play? And I said, I want to play drums. <laughs> and he said, okay, let's get in the car. And he took me to a music store that minute. And he bought me a book, a pair of sticks and a drum pad. Awesome. Like, so they, they were, they were on board with this. Um, I think they saw that I had, had the real, you know, interest and lasting interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were okay with with me not really doing the classical thing. Of course, I did the classical thing. I did. I tried to do do both. That's uh, my philosophy is learn as much as you can about everything you can. Um, I think when I was young, I I idolized the sort of the sort of Renaissance man who can do anything, speaks lots of languages. You know, the James Bond kind of mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know that to reach that, you've got to be smarter than me. <laughs> 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 but I, I feel I feel good about where I am. And I think my folks do, too. Nice. But no, I didn't have a, a way forward. I didn't have a plan or a path that was eked out. I mean, there's, there's, there was no living to be made Yeah. to speak of as a, as a conga player, which is mainly what I was getting out of college. Um, you know, you, you could play with bands, but thankfully the, my, my rent was $150. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I could actually afford it. Um, Yeah. So when did you start taking private lessons with somebody or how did you up your conga technique? Oh, well, so, uh, I'll tell you one quick story about a guy who helped me in college. 
and then um then i'll then it'll be we'll be done with that that stuff i when i was a senior I was going to, I was, I had a radio station. Uh, There's a radio, radio station called WOBC in Oberlin and students could have a show. So I, I did a show my junior year. And then my senior year, I learned about a guy named Roberto De Leon, who was a Puerto Rican. And he was doing a two hour salsa show on Wednesday nights. And I would go, because I knew the station, I could go up there and and go just hang out and listen. And while he would play music, he would tell me about it. He'd say, oh, this is this is the band from uh, is Gran, Gran Combo from Puerto Rico. And this is their sound. And you can hear the trombones. And then he would tell me about, OK, here the the, the here the there's a, like an intro. And everyone's like the bongo players playing the bell and the timbali players on the bell and the conga players playing two drums and then it goes to the verse and check it out it, they hit this thing that called the ponche and then drops down to um to the bongo player playing on the bongos the timbali player playing on the cascada and the conga player and playing on one drums on one drum and he basically like educated me on how salsa is played in the states like how most bands play salsa. Hmm. Like here's a Mozambique and, and oh, here's some Bata. You might want to check this out. And that was the first time I'd heard of Bata or heard it. And I, I was like, wow, that sounds cool. So I was looking around for that coming out of college. Um, but I learned so much that actually applied to me when I got to Portland in the early 90s or you know, late 80s, early 90s. Um, so I have a lot to, you know, a lot I can thank him for. Um, at the, as far as conga technique, I didn't have a teacher. There was nobody to teach me at Oberlin, um, nor the next year. I got out of Oberlin without any plan, except for at like the end of the year, uh, Adolfo Calero was playing, was speaking at Oberlin. I don't know why he's the Nicaraguan guy. Um, he was a, not a good guy and a Sandinista. Was he San, I can't remember. Um, so Adolfo Calero was speaking at Oberlin and in, um, uh, in sort of opposition, there was a, there was a Nicaraguan salsa band that came to Oberlin and performed a concert at the same time. And of course I didn't want to go hear that guy speak. So I went to the concert and afterwards, uh, with the conga player and he gave me a, a quick lesson and we played together and this guy walks up and he says, Oh, I heard you play, uh, play congas. And uh, I want to invite you out to Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I play guitar and I used to play with the Paul winter consort. And, um, I would like to see if you want to come be a duo and tour the country. So I said, I guess let's meet for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> and of, of course I had no other plan. So I said, okay, <laughs> he was going to, he was going to basically cover my room and board for the year and we would tour and he'd pay me 
I don't know, 50 bucks a gig or something. Now, who is this guy? Jim Scott is his name. Mm. He's a, he's a guitarist who played with the Paul Winter Consort and um, writes songs that are largely about uh, creating peace um, and saving the environment. And we played a lot of Unitarian churches um, and we had some really interesting times and we would travel across the country, uh, which we did three times in a Plymouth Reliant with lots of... <laughs> cassette tapes to sell and music books and t-shirts to sell. It was crazy. Um, wow. Sounds like it. Yeah. But at that point, at the very end of that year, I was kind of tired of traveling with him. Um, just him and I, and my other, the other housemate in the house, big house, um, said, Oh, I'm going up to Portland. And we're, I want to have a lesson with this guy, uh, Bobby Torres. Uh, oh, do you want to go? Bobby. I said, sure. I, so I, I went up to Portland with her and we, we, first we went to this dance class and it was uh, Bruce Smith and Katone Lyles right. playing oh, for a dance class. Here, yeah. then, we went, then we went over to... Um, Bobby Torres's place and we took a lesson and he said, Oh, I'm going to, you want to stick around tonight? We're, we're going to have the salsa show at, uh, I forget the name of the club and, uh, playing in the band was Nick Geffro Nick. and, and uh, <laughs> Scott Wardinsky Scotty. And, wow. and people in attendance were Valerie, uh, Valerie day. day. Yeah. And Davis new shoes. You nope. Know, we know Brian Davis and yes. um, uh, who else? Oh, I, bet uh, a, we, I bet a certain Kathy might have been there too. Kathy was there. I mean, so basically like everybody in the the hand drumming, world drumming scene, um, I think I met Israel Ano. I was just going to say his name. <laughs> yeah, I met Israel Ano there, there too. Um, and... So of course I sat in with the steel, sat in with the band, and uh, Scott said, "Hey, you should come on up and and join the Afro-Cuban dance troupe that Kathy and he were leading, mm -hmm. which became Tiempo Caribe." And I said, "Right, I, I'd like to do that." Um, and I, at the same concert, I met. Uh, well, no, I think it was later actually. Um, I met my roommates who were in the in the ensemble as dancers and uh i moved up to portland in september of that year that was be 1990. portland has a way of doing that to people <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah no portland was great for me because there i had a teacher there i could learn from scotty um and i learned from kathy and all the other people there uh, and in 90, and actually I met Mike Spiro that su same summer, mm -hmm. uh, Scott said, Hey, I'm, I'm bringing up some friends to teach and come on up. And I, I learned from, uh, Mike Spiro, mm -hmm. David Frazier, and another drummer named Scott Von Vonvalakis. Hmm, I don't know. Uh, he lives in Los Angeles. 
and uh, and I met Dennis Broughton. <laughs> really? Of all people. Nice. Um, yeah. So the so I basically met everybody in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> in my in my in my early uh, you know view of of musicians and what doing what I was doing. Um, oh, yes. Right. Yeah. I moved to Portland, joined the Tiempo Caribe group and started trying to play gigs with people. And I found some people to play with. Um, uh, I met one of my friends, Bob Cardi in Portland, who um, I had joined a, a salsa band called La Mayor Salsa. And they needed a pianist who could play. And I said, oh, well, I've got this drum student who plays piano, maybe he'll do and Bob Cardi came in and, and um, like started playing with the band. And then he started correcting the band and became eventually became the <laughs> director. <laughs> um, he lives now in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been pals around here for years, too. And uh, yeah, so Portland was basically gigging with as many people as I could find. Um, Tiempo Caribe was branching out and doing a little bit of samba um, and some bomba and some other things. So uh, it wasn't all Cuban. Um, and that's that's basically my, my Portland experience. Played with a whole bunch of different people, but there weren't that many gigs because I wasn't that well known. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, being in Portland um, at that time, like Portland was one of the cities where um, Cubans on the Mariel boat lift, this is one of the cities that they were brought to. Uh -huh. So there were a ton of Cubans. And then there still are a lot of Cubans here in Portland. So that culture was really strong. Um, hmm. And it started way back then, yeah. There were a couple of there were there were definitely a few Cubans in um, in the Afro Cuban dance troupe that that I played with. Um, they were dancers. One danced uh, one danced Ogun, and um, yeah, they were they were feisty guys. <laughs> <laughs> <There's>, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if they do the boo ball anymore in Portland. Do they? The K boo. No. Used to happen at the old Union train station. There was this giant, like everyone was tripping on acid. <laughs> and they had stages all around, and everyone was in costume around Halloween. And uh, Tiempo Caribe was was hired to play, and this I it was just like the craziest scene. This woman with blue hair jumps on the stage and like starts flashing everybody, and <laughs> then later some woman who one of the cubans was seeing was who actually is from bahia came in and was like pissed off because she was you know she he was cheating and cheating on her and came in with a knife and like stabbed one of our dancers in the oh, shoulder i heard oh about that yeah it I was a, it was a scene wow it was a crazy scene um <laughs> happy that's over <laughs> Nobody needs to die. <laughs> um, so you yeah. were here in Portland for how long? I 
I left Portland in 94. Um, I had been, um, I had been touring a little bit with this reggae world beat band playing drum set, uh, called the Native Sons, as in the sun, not, not your son. <laughs> right. And, uh, I was tired of touring with them. I was kind of out of gigs. I didn't have that many things going on locally. And I got offered a job playing with a group called Bochinche in oh, Seattle. I've heard of And they that. were a salsa band that had a school school show that performed like a over a hundred school shows per year. It was like wow. a yeah, it was like 150. And they said, oh, you know, they they called me up and I said, uh, let me consider that. And they said, yeah, well, to sweeten the deal, we've got a four-week tour. You're going to make good money on that, um, playing mm -hmm. in schools in eastern Washington. So I said, okay, I think I'm going to do it. And I moved to Seattle and because I had a job there. Um and when I moved to Seattle, I decided I want to learn samba better because all I was, I was mainly a bata student and a conga player. And I played timbales. Um, I said, I wanted to go to Seattle. When I went to Seattle, I wanted to start a samba group. When I got to Seattle, there was only one scene on, uh, in the area. I can't even remember the guy's name, but it was a very small group. And he was kind of a, I'm not sure what I want to say about him. Um, I don't think he was a great leader mm -hmm. uh, of kind of closed, closed off to people. So there wasn't really much of a scene. And so I had a bunch of friends who played Cuban music in Seattle. So I invited him over to my house and I said, I'll teach you the parts. I just want to learn some samba and I want to start a group. So I'll show you, let's just get together and hang out. So they came over and I showed them what I knew, which was not a lot. Mm -hmm. A senior recital at, in Oberlin, I did a, I did a little suite that I arranged of a bembe and a wawanko and a, a samba, um, which I would never play for anybody today. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I really didn't know what I was doing that well. Like I had not met the people in my life now. Um, but I was determined to start this group. So I had these Cuban players in my house we played and they enjoyed it. And I said, I'm interested in starting a group. Can you just put out the word to people who would be interested? And they did. And the next, next week I had 17 people in oh, my, my goodness. <laughs> including a guy named Barry Foy, who, who at the time knew much more than I did about Samba. He knew how to play Hepnique. So I put my arm around him and I said, partners? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, sure. So he, he became co-director. Now, uh, Brian, with... did you guys have any uh, of the correct instruments or were you just kind of well, using yes. what you had? We we did because I worked for Artichoke Music when I lived oh. in Portland mm -hmm. for four years. I worked there. And so I actually purchased a surdu, which now I realize I, and I use as a epic more, 
because it's mm-hmm. long oh, and skinny. I've seen that thing. <laughs> yes. I brought it to camp. That was my first yeah. first surdu that I ever bought. I meant to ask you about that because I was like, what does he have? Why is it so long? <laughs> what is that artifact? <laughs> it, it is an artifact. It's really old. Um, anyway, the <laughs> I had that as a surdu. And then I, I think I bought a gope right before I moved there or right after. I forget. So I had a, I had two surdus. I had a, a snare drum. Kaisha was crap. And I had, of course, some shakers, and I had agogos, and I had, I, I didn't have very much. I had enough for about five to seven people. Not 17. <laughs> but people brought their own instruments. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I was handing out as many shakers as I could to some of the people who didn't have them. But, um, but I realized that there were other people who had instruments. So they showed up, and the next week... Um, after that, 17 people showed up. I had 25 in my living room. And said, okay, wow. this, is, this is growing fast. We need to we need to go out. And we started rehearsing at Gasworks Park. Mm-hmm. And that was that worked out for a while until the you know the houseboat people said I got to come. <laughs> and we moved around a few different times. We finally ended up ended up on some place that was out off the bay. It's kind of a park, but there's like, you can walk along the shore, but there's sort of a field you can, you could be in where no one was bothered. Um, and that was, that band was called Samba Seattle. And today that band is called Vamola. Oh, nice. So Samba Seattle started in 94. And we parade. We paraded five parades that first summer. I was I was so gung ho, but I wow. I realized that's too much. Um, yeah, we played five different. We played Solstice, Fremont Solstice. We played Gay Pride. We played Torchlight, and we played Magnolia and West Seattle parades. And the 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 best one, of course, was Fremont Solstice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pride Parade was good, and the the local parades were good, but the Torchlight Parade was murder. It's Get three hours. Oh my Most God. of the contingents are cars, so they're driving along waving, and you're running behind them with your circus. <laughs> right, getting gas. It was, probably. <laughs> it, yeah, we we and it's like three miles long. It's longer than the San Francisco Carnival yes. Parade, which is long. So. I don't recommend it for any samba group on foot. So, did you get a lot did... of recruities, uh, recruits? I guess it would be <laughs> during those parades. Um, <laughs> recruities. You know, i i have to I have to admit, this was my first year leading a samba parade, like leading a samba group in a parade, and I didn't really know my way around. I didn't know how to get new members. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I was from word of mouth. From my members, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the members of my group was on the steering committee, or or had something to do with the Fremont Solstice Parade. So she was able to help build us banner and those kinds of things. Um, and the group did grow. Uh, I never charged. 
I don't think I charged people uh, a, a weekly fee because I really wasn't a teacher yet. I was, I was kind of learning myself. Um, I just wanted to do it. Uh, I did charge them when I bought the when I bought the t-shirts. Um, then I then I would ask them, you know, of course, to cover the cost. But um, that's how how it got going. So how so you were saying you didn't know how to get new members. Part of this podcast is to kind of help people figure out how to run, start groups, and attract new members. What do you? What are your secrets now? How do you attract members? Um, or how would you do it now? Now that I don't actually lead that group, nor do I lead a, a community group of my own, I don't mm -hmm. worry about it. Um, presently, I'm teaching the Samba School at, at UC Davis. Right, mm -hmm. right. And I run the Afro-Cuban, direct the Afro-Cuban Ensemble, which I started there uh, three years ago. Um, uh, but I don't have to worry about them either. They just sign up and I've got a class <laughs> right. almost always at the limit. Um, I think, uh, I think it's a good idea for there to be some, some kind of remittance for students, especially if they're, they're learning from the directors. Um, if, if schools are able to have a, an inexpensive place to play. Um, that's usually the best scenario. If you've got to pay for your space, then you need to have other, other forms of, of, uh, income. Um, one of the things that I do in the Shoro world, which is mostly where I, a lot of where I live, um, for example, Berkeley Shoro Ensemble, we, Jane and Jane Lenoir, who's a flute player. Uh, in that ensemble, she and I started a, a, a um, Shoro festival here in Berkeley that's now run for six years. And now we're starting to realize that the one of the ways to do it is you find an organization. Here it's Intermusic SF, and they're a fiscal sponsor, so they can fiscally sponsor us as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. so we're not technically a nonprofit. We can run a fundraiser for our festival right and uh take donations for this or that event or or ongoing um you could have a fund drive to raise money to uh get your get um all your costumes made um and reach out to the greater community so that's that's a good way to go also i recommend writing grants because there are grants out there for for the arts um right now jane and i are, are jane's mostly writing them she's writing uh three different grants for the festival this year i got one last year for the festival and i'm going to write one for an uh shoro band and orchestra uh arrangement and concert in the fall so we're that's that's in my in my opinion the best way to go if you've got somebody who can can uh, can sponsor you fiscally, kind of umbrella, uh, yeah, and then write grants. Mm -hmm. I know <laughs> some people do get sponsorship from businesses. That's another way to go. 
Yep. I always hear, I always have the impression anyway, is that arts grants aren't that big and they're very far between unless, unless you're, um, you know, if like you, the local symphony or something like, is that not your experience? Um, that's what I thought too. If they are, they are not that big, generally speaking, some are some are larger than others, but if you need two or three thousand yeah. dollars, that's a big grant, and yeah. there are a fair amount of them. Um, the the organization that is our fiscal sponsor, Intermusic SF, has um, has their own musical grant program where they'll give up to three or four thousand dollars to bands to make a CD or to. Mm. Uh, to get a piece written, a new a new work composed. Hmm. Um, we're also looking at the City of Berkeley Arts grants, and and we're writing a few of those. We're writing to the Zellerbach Foundation. If you do a little digging, and you go to some of the some of the arts uh, arts organizations in your city, you'd be surprised what what's there. Um, and what resources they might have. Hmm. That's what we're finding. Yeah, very cool. That's a good mm -hmm. tip. Nice. So, hey, Brian. Um, yeah. So you were mm -hmm. in Seattle. Let's get back to the story. <laughs> How did you get to the Bay Area? Um, so when I lived in Seattle, um, at the time, at the time I was single. I had been with my 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 wife is Leslie. Um, we were together in Oberlin and then Portland, and then we broke up and then I moved to Seattle. So when I was in Seattle, I was unencumbered by family life and was basically taking every gig I could do. Um, also in Seattle, I found, uh, I, when I got there, I was like, I'm going to be a conga player. and I'm going to start this Samba group. I did start the Samba group. Um, I even started an Afro-Cuban folkloric dance troupe. Uh, like Tiempo Caribe from Portland. Um, but I couldn't hardly get a conga gig because there were people who played congas, but they needed more people who played played sticks. So mm -hmm. I played more timbales and drum set and bongo uh, while I was there. But I was working a lot. I played a ton of concerts there, just working mm -hmm. and working. Um, by 96, 96, uh, I, what got me to move to the Bay Area was um, I was kind of ready for a, a bigger pond. Mm -hmm. um, I mm. played with kind of everyone I could. Uh, I played with Jovino. I played with all the bands. They're all, they're all they're obsession, illusion, expression. Uh, they all, I called them the shuns. I played with all the shuns. There were like five salsa bands or Latin jazz bands that all ended with T I O N C I O N C I O N. Um, <laughs> um, but I was I was I was ready. I wanted to be somewhere a little different, and uh, so I decided to move to the Bay Area, um, and was lucky enough to get here and have my friend 
Mike Spiro say, Hey, I got a gig for you. <laughs> I record, record and they're doing a tour to the Virgin Islands. Uh, but oh. I can't make, the, can you do it? And I said, hell yeah. <laughs> um, and that was with a klezmer band. Oh, wow. So, oh, sweet. <laughs> so, so you can see, I, I got down here and I find myself again, like I moved to Seattle wanting to be a conga player and I couldn't <laughs> play congas because there were plenty of conga players there, you know, decent players. So I, when I get to the Bay area, I didn't play congas almost ever. Mm -hmm. I played drum set in klezmer bands. I played a lot of bata because this is where my bata teachers were. Mike Spiro, mm -hmm. was there. my, my new teacher, Regino Jimenez, who mm -hmm. 91 at Stanford in a summer pro program and studied with them over the years when I was in Seattle and I had him come up for my Afro-Cuban group performances. Uh, Regino was coming to, coming to the Bay area on, with some frequency. So I was ready to move down here and I get down here and I find myself playing bata drums and in klezmer bands. Hmm. <laughs> and then I got hired a as a weird, a, like, and, <laughs> and then of course you can't forget the green street mortuary <laughs> band in, in Chinatown, <laughs> which I was playing snare drum with every, <laughs> practically every weekend. Um, that was wait. Say that again. I played <laughs> in. Street. I played for a bunch of years uh, in a marching band in Chinatown ah. for Street Mortuary, <laughs> what was, does that which mean? catered well. So in 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 <laughs> Hong Kong, about eighty ninety years ago, it used to be considered a great honor if that if you're important and you died. Uh -huh. uh, you would have a, a British marching band, a British style brass band play at your your funeral procession. And wow. that came to San Francisco and uh, that <laughs> ended in Chinatown in San Francisco at, at right. the Green Band. Sure, so sure. Play, play these half hour uh, marches down the street, um, playing snare drum or bass drum or something. Does it still and happen? You found yourself in like three really odd music scenes, <laughs> right? So, so then it, it wasn't wasn't long after that uh, that California Coast music, uh, sorry, uh, California Brazil camp started. Uh, but also uh, shortly after that, I joined Wake the Dead, which is the Grateful Dead cover band and. <laughs> mixed together. It's a mashup of Celtic music and great. Oh my Dead. goodness. Opposite yeah. of the mortuary band. Yeah. And yeah, and the Bata and the and the Klezmer groups. So um you can kind of see uh my my trajectory was I'm going out there and I'm gonna play music no matter what it is. Anything and right. everything. Anything and everything. It's uh, the same today. Um at that point, did you, was Georgie already in the Bay Area? Uh, no, I don't think Georgie had moved here yet. Mm -hmm. I think, I think he moved here in early 2000s, like 2002 or three, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
So he wasn't here, but I had met him, of course, at the very first Brazil camp, mm -hmm. which I've attended at least a part of every year. Nice. It was kind of more of a capoeira thing than what, right? It was. It was capoeira and music. And they didn't have the dance portion. And they didn't have all the music. The, you know, Georgie was doing everything. He was teaching the bateria. He was teaching the candomblé classes. He was accompanying the dance. Uh, well, he wasn't accompanying the classes yet because they didn't have the dance yet. Um, but he was also running the pagogi classes. Like, Oh, wow. Everything. Mm-hmm. He was kind of doing everything. Wow. Uh, and it until we got more more faculty, uh, he was it wasn't until then that he was able to like re relax a little bit. But still, he ran the bateria for many, many, many years and was doing the candomblé. And when they added the dance, then he was accompanying the dances too. Right. So it was a relief, I'm sure, for him when they brought in Ailton Nunez. Um, yeah. Now, Brian, did you go as an accompanist or as a, just an attendee to your first Brazil camp? Um, my first Brazil camp, I went as an attendee mm -hmm. and, uh, I think for the next few I did as well. Um, they didn't have, at the time they didn't have dance accompanists, um, going on like a dance accompanist scholarship or anything. I, I don't know I how, know. I, I mean, I wasn't accompanying the dance classes except that I would because it was sometimes more fun than, than right. get more out of it than I would from say taking a class. Um, so I would accompany a class here and there. Um, it was around 2002 or three cause I had, um, in 2000, I went to Brazil for the first time and studied in, I went to Rio for Carnival and I went to a bunch of ensayos, but I, one of the things I did was I studied it. I took a lesson, a couple lessons with Marco Susano, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a very innovative pandeiro technique. And I was really getting interested in pandeiro from the very first Brazil camp and my, um, uh, my lesson with Marco Susano ended up being fantastic. Uh, so around 2002, 2003, I began, uh, they used to hire me to teach a one-time class. Just come in, Brian, can you teach a Susano method class? And so I would do, I would start doing that um, pretty much every year, starting in the early 2000s. Yeah, so I think when they began doing, uh, starting to use people like me as accompanists, then of course I was jumping on that. Um, that's, I mean, that seems like a really good way to go because over the 21 years that the camp's been going, um, we've really seen a, um, I've seen a really big sort of boost in what's going on around the U.S. Uh, as far as mm -hmm. directors and players. There are so many wonderful players who used to be students there at camp. Um, and it's really 
great to see them grow the way they have, you know. Um, and uh, so that's, that's, I mean, the camp has brought so much to so many people, including me, I have to say. I'm, I'm very indebted to, to uh, the camp and what Dennis has done and all the people I've met through the camp. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a wonderful, <clears throat> wonderful thing. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about your um, dive into playing Pandero. Yeah, so at the first Brazil camp, I had been playing Pandero actually since, um, uh, well, I started learning in college. In fact, I'll tell you this story. This is kind of interesting. Um, when I was a, uh, I was, I think I was a sophomore at Oberlin, the Sao Paulo State University Percussion Ensemble came to Oberlin and did a concert, and they were playing classical, uh, classical percussion pieces, marimbas and timpani and all that stuff. And at the end, because they're from Brazil, they did a sort of an arrangement of traditional rhythms. Um, and they had a beer and bow player and they had a guy who played heckle heckle, played the shit out of it. That's Carlos Stasi. Um, and a guy who played Pandeiro. And I, I watched the Pandeiro player and I was like, what the hell is that? That's really cool. <laughs> and afterwards, the two percussion ensembles were having dinner together at the pizza place next door. And, um, I was sitting next to Carlos Stasi, that, that guy who plays uh, heckle heckle. He's actually a doctor of heckle heckle. He studied scrape. Oh, wow. He got his doctorate studying scrapers in South Africa. All, I mean, like mm. all kinds of places. Um, anyway, interesting guy, Carlos Stasi. And I was sitting next to him and I said, how do you play that pandeiro, that tambourine thing? He said, oh, the pandeiro. He said, well, you go thumb, tip, heel, tip. And I said, that's it? He said, yeah, just do that. Thumb tip, heel tip. That's all you need to know. And I said, well, I don't have a pandeiro. Um, he said, I, I've, got a, I've got a tambourine. He said, oh, you don't need a pandeiro or a tambourine or anything. You can play it on a book. And so my, my French text in college served as my <laughs> practice tool for pandeiro nice. from 1986 until... Until I worked at Artichoke Music and finally bought a really crappy Pandeiro, which was way too heavy and sounded like, <laughs> sounded awful. Um, and I got a little bit better instrument, but it was a 12-inch heavy Samba Pandeiro up in Seattle. And uh, then I then I met, uh, then I went to the first Brazil camp and met Claudio Bueno. He was the first uh, Pandeiro teacher he came with uh, Josimar, a great uh, seven-string player, and uh, Marco de Pina, an amazing mandolinist from Rio. And he showed me all kinds of stuff that I had no idea you could do on a pandeiro. The finger mm. roll and, the, and dampening the pandeiro, right thumb instead of the finger underneath with your left hand. And it it really opened my eyes to the Pandeiro and really excited me about the Pandeiro. And then when I went to Brazil in 2000 for the first time, that, that year I, um, I met up with him in Rio 
and we went around to some hadas. He got me a couple of pandeiros that I was able to buy from him, so I had a decent lightweight pandeiro. I got that lesson with Susano, and I was by then I was hooked. I pretty much uh, dove right in. Um, a few years later, Gelo came to Brazil camp. Right. I remember that. Uh, he's an amazing pandeiro player. And uh, we've had Sergio Krakowski, of oh. course, is incredible. Amy's come up, come up along the way. So great, you know, great, great people there. Um, I'll, uh, Douglas Alonso, who's mm -hmm. a drummer, was also an amazing data player. I learned some things from him. Nice. Um, I've been, I found that I really enjoyed playing Shoro. And that I could learn a lot about playing pandeiro from playing shoro, because samba, samba pagodi or samba is just so um, it's very conventional. Like there's certain certain things. I mean, you got to learn them to play that style, but there's a sort of a convention to them, and there's a little bit more freedom uh, of interpretation in shoro. That's kind of how I think of it. Um, and I can, I found that the stuff I learned from uh, all of those teachers really made a, made a difference in how my Shoro playing goes, but it applies to everything. And the Susano stuff just really applies to anything because you can turn by turning your, flipping the hand around to the other, starting with the tips of the hand instead of the heel of the hand. I know for anybody who's not a Pandeta player, this is foreign, but, uh, um, the way he approaches the pandeiro just blew it open for me, and now I like to take it to anything, any gig I do. Um, so I played pandeiro with Mexican group. I played pandeiro with Israeli or, or uh, yeah, Israeli, and also a Persian band. Played pandeiro with um, funk things. I mean, it. it works for anything and that's what i think uh that's what i discovered about it that i loved was it's you see it and you're like that's so incredible you can do anything and it's so portable um yeah and i think that's what everybody says. you know the first time you see it you're like that's what i want to do and then you start it and you go oh, this is not that easy um <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Kind of like tabla. Now, can could you tell us how y you toured with Danilo Brito from from Brazil a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he and I met. Um, uh, I play with another great mandolinist named Mike Marshall in his band called Famoso, mm -hmm. and we started playing together in the late '90s, kind of around the time Brazil Camp was happening, starting. And um, we did a bunch of great gigs together, tours and such. Um, Amy played in that for a, a little bit, and Mike Marshall played in that for, I'm sorry, Mike Spiro played in that for a little bit. So the, the Mandolin Symposium was, a, was organized by Mike Marshall and Dave Grisman down in Santa Cruz. And uh, that's where I met Danilo Brito and Hamilton Giolanda and Dudu Maya. Um, and a lot of other great mandolinists. And Danilo and I, 
um, got to play a bunch together at that symposium. Um, and we developed a trust musical friendship, you know. Um, he basically uh, trusted me to play because he, he has some pretty fast songs. And uh, so Danilo, uh, Danilo and I developed a friendship and about three years ago, he came to the States uh, on an extraordinary musician's visa because he's kind of extraordinary and uh, or really extraordinary. Anyway, um, his Pandeiro player bailed at the last minute and he needed somebody who could come or could go on the tour. So he called me and said, can you can you help me? I've got these different shows I need you to play on. Um, and I said, of course, I can, I can make these. I can't make those other two, but I can make these ones. And, and so I got to tour with him. We got some, had got to do some really nice shows. We got to play at the Mondavi Center and the, um, at Kumbwa in Santa Cruz, but also Lincoln Center, the Dizzy's Club and the Kennedy Center and the Savannah Music Festival. Uh, where we were on double bill with Hermeto Pascual. So that was really cool. We also got to play a Tiny Desk concert in NPR. So um, we got to do some really fun, uh, fun shows together. We, we did tour again uh, the next year. And there you are. Right. So tell us, tell us about, um, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to screw this up. Your, your new show trio, Trace Bias, is that how you say it? Trace Bias. Bias. Trace Bias. It, it, I don't understand what the difference is between the spelling with the H or the, or with the accent, but I understand that it's basically pronounced the same way and it means the same thing. Okay. So it's, it means three bays, and it's inspired by um, Almir Korchis, the mandolinist, is from Bahia, so Bahia de Todos Santos, and Nando Duarte is from uh, Rio, so Guanabara Bay. And my bay is the San Francisco Bay now, uh, even though you could say that I was, you know, grew up in Michigan where there's two bays. East and West Bay, up in Traverse City, but uh, but I'm now more of a San Franciscan than a Michigander, so uh, yeah, so San Francisco and the yeah, it's it's the the picture on the front is you can kind of see the three bays sort of overlapping in colors, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, tell us about the group, though. Tell us about, like, getting that going. So, yeah, well, there's another connection with the Mandolin Symposium, which is Almir. Almir Korchis uh, arrived at Brazil, uh, sorry, at, uh, at the Mandolin Symposium, I think it was in 2010 or 2011. And I was... I was going to the Mandolin Symposium because I'm a friend of Mike's and I play in Mike's Choro Band. And so we were, I was sort of the resident percussionist 
covering the Shorohodas, because it's hard to have any Shorohoda without Pandeiru. Um, and that was something that they were teaching at the, at the symposium. So Almir was here doing some uh, doctoral studies at, in Indiana and came out to, uh, to the Mandolin Symposium. And we met and we hit it off big time. We became close friends, have been ever since. Um, and he plays, he's mostly, well, I don't know if he's mostly, he's a guitarist. He plays six string guitar. He plays cavaquinho. He plays mandolin, 10 string. And he plays viola caipira and some other instruments too. He's a, he's a, he's a multiple, multi-instrumentalist on, on the strings, string department. And he's a professor at Unihiu, the at Federal where? University. Unihiu, which is the university in Rio, federal university in, in Rio de Janeiro. Um, so I've known him for quite a few years. He's, he came up in, uh, to the Bay Area for about six months and we, we put together a band. Uh, I put together a band with him and Ricardo Peixoto called uh, uh, Trio Lampejo. It means spark. Something that doesn't last very long, and um, and we, <laughs> so we it was basically to to play the music of Ricardo's and Almir's because they both write interesting music. Uh, so it was a cool trio. We had some good fun, um, and a, like um, a few years later, um, Almir was back because he had recorded a, a CD with Harvey Wineapple, really nice one. Um, and they were there here to promote that. And I, that was in 2018 in January. And I, I said, oh, I've got to bring up this guitarist I know, Nando Duarte, who lives in Los Angeles. And this guy is incredible. Um, he, you know, he'll say, he'll say, oh, do you, do you know this song? He'll say, no. And then you'll start to play it, and he'll play it like he wrote the dang thing. Um, incredible seven-string player. Um, and I put together a concert at the sound room with the three of us, and it just just gelled. It was off the hook in a way. Um, and I liked it so much, so I said, I'm going to bring you guys back next year, and um, I'll fly you both up, and we're going to record a CD together. Oh, right on. So this was... This was in spite of the fact that it doesn't say it on the CD, this was my production um, and my first sort of project of my own creation. Hmm, and cool. uh, so I'm really real proud of this this particular one because you know it's, I'm always a sideman um, on a lot of right. records, but uh, this was my own my own idea, and uh, so I flew them up the next year and we recorded tracked for three days and did a bunch of editing. Nando has some great connections uh, as far as the person who did the artwork and another person who did the mixing and mastering. Um, both incredible musicians uh, or artists in Brazil. Um, and we got a bunch of guest artists uh, on it through all three of us. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a it's a nice project. Yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you.
And you were just here. What was the group that you were here with last year, last fall? You were in oh, Portland. That was, and you guys were traveling through. That was, that was Trace by Yes. Ah, uh, okay. That was the CD release, wasn't it? It was the CD release. Um, unfortunately, the northwest portion of our tour, um, Nando couldn't make. So we released mm. the CD in... We went to, we played Salem, we played Seattle, and then we played Portland. And we had uh, Colin Walker playing with us, who's a fine seven string player, from, also from Los Angeles. He plays in Shore Famoso with me and Mike Marshall. Um, mm -hmm. So I called him when Nando said he had to go to Brazil for that second weekend. So we, we did three concerts in the Bay Area and then three week, three. Uh, in the northwest a week later right on back to your old stomping grounds yeah it was great i'll tell you when i played in seattle i did a house concert up there and i called all my buddies and let's see who did i see well my brother came out he lives in friday harbor um i saw tor dietrichson I saw a bunch of people from my Samba school, Samba Seattle. I saw a couple of old students. And my wife's cousin lives out there in, in uh, is it Bellingham? Across the lake. Mm -hmm. And um, his whole family came. And my wife's aunt, her cousin's mother, was happened to be in town so they all came so there were five i had six family members oh and her cousin on her dad's side also lives there and had recently gotten married and so <laughs> he and his wife so i actually had five six seven eight family members in the room listening to my concert it wow, was awesome that's a great turnout yeah was that i said that's a great turnout it was yeah. It was really nice to see all, all those people, and uh, no Yuki came. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. No Yuki was at the very first Brazil camp as well. Oh really? Right. I remember him from my first couple years there. Yeah. That's another one we need to get to move to Portland. What's that? Get me to move to Portland? Yeah, we gotta get now Yuki and you, all these people. I know it'll never happen. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I would love to come up and visit any time. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Well, except for right now. Once Don't we're not, right not in a except, pandemic. No, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. It's It might actually Stay be a couple of years. I was saying while you were uh, trying to get Diana on the line that um, I discovered, uh, well, I've been told now that I've got to teach my Brazilian Samba Ensemble at UC Davis remotely. Mm -hmm. Online. Yeah. Oh. So how do you teach an ensemble yeah. remotely? I don't know. Technology. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't really. I mean, there's not a, there's not a platform that doesn't have the latency. No. 
Don't they do like choir classes online? I heard something about a choir class that was online. Mm. But I mean, maybe it's yeah. like sustained notes. It's okay with percussion. You got to be a little more. There's there's a way there's a way you can do it. I I did see a a video of a a guy who has a count off, and then he conducts and he sends out a conducting video to each of his choir members, and they uh-huh. each sing their own part in their own house on a video. And then he huh. compiles the audio and he compiles the video into one screen so that you can see all the singers and they're all mixed uh, mixed well. So, and he's so conducting in the corner. It's not real time though. It's not real time. Hmm. I mean, there. I think there's some guy who does real time choir stuff, but I'm not really sure how that's done. Um, I don't think it's really uh, possible with a bateria. Yeah. Um, I might be wrong and, you know, maybe I'll figure it out, but, um, Can it's going to end up being six, something different. Six feet apart. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> well, students park. aren't even allowed on campus right now, yeah. nor yeah. am I to, to speak of. I mean, I can go there if I had to, but, but, uh, they're really clamping down. Yeah. How did you get involved? Uh, strange. At, at, how did you get involved there? Um, at UC Davis? Yeah. Um, doing that. I have a, a friend. His name is Chris Fro, And I met him playing with George Alabe's group, Samba Hugh, down here. He was uh, coming down and playing playing at uh, the rehearsals for Samba Rio in Oakland, I think because he was teaching the Samba Ensemble at Davis, and I think he might have needed some material. I'm huh. not sure. I like he, he was, uh, he doesn't have the background I do um, in Samba, but he, he knew enough, he knew a fair amount um, kind of enough to get a basic ensemble going. Um, but he teaches the, the, uh, apply, he's an applied faculty. So he's teaching percussion lessons and he teaches percussion ensemble. And, um, uh, so I think he was sort of wishing that he could get somebody in who could teach the Samba ensemble, who both maybe had more experience in it, but also would bear the um the volume issue like he wanted to spare spare his ears oh uh-huh. uh, which i i don't i don't blame him at all um for that and i'm actually happy that uh he brought me in so he he brought me in for a quarter or two at a time hmm. uh starting in 2014 actually mm-hmm. um and about the my third year he handed the Samba Ensemble over to me entirely, uh, so 2016. And then I added the Afro-Cuban Ensemble uh, in 2018. Cool. Yeah. And that, what year did you start again? Start there? Start doing that? 2014. Right on. Was my, I did, I taught two, two quarters of the, of the Samba School. Yeah. I love how the, he, uh, it's also called Samba School. 
It's not called the Brazilian Ensemble. Right. <laughs> I like that. Um, uh, though, once I got there, I, I'm teaching both bateria, uh, Rio style, and samba, samba reggae or, or Bahian styles. I've even taught, uh, one quarter I taught some maracatu, and I've done oh, pagodji several, several quarters. Um, we did a siranda a few years ago, or last year. Um, so I'm trying to trying to mix it up for that ensemble, not just be Rio style and and samba reggae all the time. Right, right. Um, cool. Trying to broaden broaden it, and it, I'm going to have to do that this quarter because we've got everything's going to be online. I'll be Zoom, you know, having Zoom discussions with everybody, but we can't really play together. I may have people play things or sing things to a quick track and try to compile them into a into a performance that's recorded. Um, but I don't know how well that's going to work. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's going to be uh, totally, it's a totally new world. Yeah. Yes, it is. We're all, we're all stuck at home. We're working off the same internet. We're all working in the same house. All four of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Brian, um, we're probably going to wind this down just because it's getting late and yeah. uh, I need to eat dinner. <laughs> um, but a couple uh, questions we like to end on is um, you've been playing, you know, all kinds of wonderful music throughout the years. Is there a moment that stands out for you as a really happy moment or memorable moment, performance or rehearsal, anything. Wow. I have to say a whole lot of different moments jump out from jump out at me for different reasons. I have to say it was really exciting. A recent, fairly recent one was um, going out on stage and playing Pandeiro with Hermet Pascual and Danilo. Oh, yeah. Um, that was in 2000, I think, 17. That was pretty high, pretty high moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I've done, I've done some really, I've been very fortunate to get to do some pretty, pretty nice gigs. Um, I always, of course, love going to the camp. It's like homecoming. All the people we all know. It's that's that's uh, a really sweet thing. Um, I also I try to find loveliness and beauty and love in all the the smaller moments too, like just those moments with a student or or with a with a colleague, and we're playing. Um, I, I, I find, I mean, every, every moment of those times, just, they all sort of stick in my mind. It's great. <laughs> That's why I do what I do. Awesome. It's because I, I find, I find it so uplifting and rewarding. Um, yeah. Mm, nice. 
Is there anything that we um that we haven't asked you about that you want to share? Uh gosh. I guess I feel like I've shared a lot. I'm sure there's more in the well. I haven't pulled up. Um, uh, where can they find your CD? Where can you find my CD? Gosh, uh, it's on CD Baby, I believe, mm -hmm. if you actually buy those things anymore. Um, more easily, <laughs> you can find it on Spotify and all the other uh, digital platforms. Oh, cool. If you want a copy, um, you can also write me directly uh, through my website, www.brian-rice.com. Um, and I will tell you what to, how to pay me, and I can send you one off. Um, very good. I recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a very, I find it very calming. There's some really nice mm. moments. There's also some very beautiful moments that, Whenever I listen to it, and I don't listen to it all that often, but when I do, I go, oh, that's so nice. It's so pleasing. <laughs> and I, so I, I highly recommend it in this particular uh, time of, of crisis in America right. and around the world. So go check it out. Great suggestion. <laughs> Therapy CD. Is it uh, brian-rice.com? Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Brian. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Sorry it took so long to, to come together. So that was the episode with Brian Rice. If you go to our website, thebrazilianbeat.com you will see um, this is episode 64 and you will see uh, photos of Brian and all his links and um, to all his social media and his CD and all that stuff there so go check that out his website yeah his website and everything so we have a couple of shout outs today one is for Barbara Watkins from Bloco do Sul in Hi, San Barbara. Jose and she wrote us a nice little message uh, telling us about she's been catching up on her listening, you know, with everything going on. She has more time to listen. So uh, we appreciate your message, Barbara. It was nice of you to, to send us that. Yeah, thank you. We also have a shout out today to John Beard, who bought a Brazilian Beat t-shirt. I'm sure he's been wanting one for ages and now is the time to get it. Yeah. Thanks, John. If you wear a Brazilian Beat shirt, a lot of people don't realize you are either twice as beautiful or twice as handsome <laughs> as before you put it on. So just keep that in mind, everybody. People might recognize you. That's right. Except for your quarantine, <laughs> so you don't see anybody. True. <laughs> you know, when I have like a good hair day, I get kind of mad these days. Oh, I haven't had a good hair me. day in age. <laughs> <laughs> There's been none of those recently. But... uh I have to go pick up my groceries <laughs> on Sunday, so maybe I'll do it up. <laughs> Put some makeup on, some earrings. <laughs> Get really dressed up. <laughs> oh, it's the little things. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to see the guy that puts the groceries in, <laughs> in the car. 
that's funny. Well, if you um, would like to contact us, you can do so by emailing us at thebrazilianbeat at gmail.com. If you'd like to send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, you can do that. We are the Brazilian Beat Podcast on Facebook, and we are, what are we on Instagram? <laughs> the Brazilian Beat. I think we're just the Brazilian Beat on Instagram. I think we're Brazilian Beat Podcast. Maybe. Uh, and we're on Twitter at the Brazilian Beat One. And I think that's it. No TikTok for us girls. No. Um, and you can find our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast, Google Podcasts, Player FM, and on many more. And we're on uh, Spotify. You can also stream our podcast through the website, but if you would like to if you guys would like some help with how to set up a podcast player on your phone and and listen to the podcast or another podcast, just let us know, get in touch, we can help you do that. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening. 